Hi, I'm Christina Dennis, and you are listening to The Recovered Life Show. Every week, we bring you a Recovered Life discussion about rewiring your brain and how understanding your brain will help you fully live your best recovered life. Remember, addiction is a life-threatening condition, and the information in this discussion is provided as a resource only and is not to be used or relied on for any diagnostic or treatment purposes. This is not a substitute when professional diagnosis or treatment is needed. Now let's jump into the discussion. Okay, well, I think that we should get started for everyone who was here right on time. First, thank you so much for coming to this discussion. Uh, it is in uh, it is a makeup session because we weren't able to do the room Tuesday. And so I really appreciate people who are here on a day that we don't normally do this. Um, welcome to Recovered Life Discussions. My name is Christina Dennis. I am a recovery coach um, who is, specializes in helping people break codependent patterns and to have breakthroughs. So very happy to be here with my co-mod, Deanna. Good morning. Good morning. I just read the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's but you have bring such great conversation to it. And so for those who are not familiar with it, I'll just quickly do a kind of um, summary of what we've been doing now for, I believe, three months. We've um, dug into Brene Brown's latest book. Uh, at one point, I'm not going to be able to say that, but um, it is called The Atlas of the Heart and its specific purpose um and and this is restated a lot in the in the book is to give us language around emotions and help us understand them knowing that having language helps us define them and it helps us have clues on how to behave and it's been very very enlightening um incredibly powerful uh viewpoints have been shared and uh I would love for some people who are willing to come up and become part of the conversation to raise your hand. We have got some very, very powerful emotions. You know, you may ask yourself, what does that have to do with rewiring your brain? Well, what we know is as we take agency with our thoughts and we get more information, we start building new neuropathways. And this is very important in the world of recovery. And uh, so as a group, it was voted in to do this. And I, and I think the, that the effort and the time that's been spent on it has been incredibly powerful for my recovery. Um, Deanna, would you say the same? Extremely powerful. I, I find I'm going to read this book again. Like mm -hmm. that's how amazing this book is. And I'm going to like we've, we're diving deep in now, but it's just touching the surface on so many emotions I had no idea about. So right. I think this is just fabulous. Well, and I think it really is important in the recovery role because I'll speak for just myself, um, although I've heard it over and over again. Uh, a lot of the reasons why I drank alcoholically is because I didn't want to feel these feelings. And there's a common um, concept in the recovery world that when we, we stop growing emotionally, and spiritually when we disconnect into the world of addiction. And so uh, I have been, you know, gratefully on the road of recovery for 25 years now. And so I, I feel like, you know, I've really 
really been able to start learning about my emotions. And one of the one of the most powerful things about digging in and having language around them is that they don't make them as scary. And I feel very unified uh, and I've just really enjoyed the decision to go ahead and start. And so today, Dana, will you read what are the emotions we're going through today? Absolutely. All right, so today we are on chapter 12, which is places we go when we feel wronged, anger, mm -hmm. contempt, disgust, dehumanization, hate, and self-righteousness. It's very powerful. <laughs> I bet, you know, it's going to be a two-parter um, because I think these feelings are really, really big. And I love... Um, I, I'm no, I'm not going to say I love talking about anger, content and disgust, but I think that it's really, really important because for me, when I within my first couple of years of recovery, I I follow the 12 steps. That was my introduction um, to a spiritual awakening. And I had gotten the idea that it wasn't all right for me to be angry. Um, I had gotten that long before I entered into a recovery process, but I think that is an important emotion and, and this, what she shared really just solidified that for me. Um, I don't like feeling angry. Uh, I know that maybe there are some people do that do enjoy it, but I even question that thinking because it is hard to feel anger. And so I want to kind of share about um, some of the information and the data that, that Brene Brown brings up. And for those of you who don't know, Brene Brown is very open about her own recovery process. And so this is extremely cool to see um, because I think that sometimes she brings some of that into the discussion. And I just love that. I, I will always feel very, very grateful that I had an alcohol problem, which sounds, you know, like what? That seems crazy, but it's the truth because without, um, without the access to something that numbed me, I'm not sure I would have made it through those first six years of my drinking career, but also it introduced me to these amazing concepts and I just knew I had to get to the bottom of it. Like I had to get to healing and I feel like I, I got a shortcut. Um, I think our world is also been through a lot in the last, you know, six years. Um, you know, in this particular country, there's been incredible device, dis divisiveness. Um, and political, and we all just survived a pandemic. And so um, last week we talked about contentment being one of the goals that uh, the world is kind of leaning toward versus the bigger and better and, you know, consumption and accumulation. And, and I just kind of feel like our entire world um, has gotten to this place where they're like, we have got to figure it out. And anger has been a big part of the you know, landscape. And so the definition of anger is when something gets in the way of a desired outcome or when we believe there is a violation of the way things should be. And I thought that was really interesting way to break it down because sometimes I don't even know why I'm angry. Like I have to stop um, and, and really write down some of the reasons so that I can see, you know, my prefrontal cortex can get involved. And, um, 
And, and this really explains why. It says, believing that someone or something else is to blame for an unfair or unjust situation and something can be done to solve the problem. So anger is an action emotion. We want to do something when we feel it. And we are, even if we're the ones receiving anger, we want to do something. And they, she discusses a researcher, Charles Spielberg, Berger, Spielberger, um, and he talks about the spectrum of anger feelings, so that they vary on intensity, and they can, they can be uh, a mild irritation to, uh, or annoyance to the fury and rage. And I'm not sure I had thought about the fact that, you know, there could be little, you know, like I have a little bit of anger. And so I thought that was really interesting information to think about. The other thing that gets described in the uh, in her book is that f it's a full contact emotion because it activates our nervous system and can hijack our thoughts and behaviors. It can take a real toll on our physical and mental health. And that I have felt. Um, Deanna, what, what did you think about those opening thoughts around the um, emotion anger? Well, I have to say that I'm, I'm, a, I'm glad that, I don't know if that's the correct word <laughs> since we're doing this, I'm not sure. Um, I'm glad that we, we are doing a makeup session today around this because when I first read about anger, I didn't recognize it in myself. I don't, mm. like you said, I don't like to be angry. That's not something I gravitate towards, but I know I have anger inside me and I know certain things trigger it. So I've actually been thinking a lot about this this last week and just just trying to be aware of of that that nervous system hijack that you're talking about. Um, because I, I don't, I, I can't recognize at this moment the anger that I do have when it's there. So that's something I'm working on, just recognizing that I feel angry and then what I'm going to do about it after that. So this has been really helpful. Oh my God, yes. I'm so glad that you said that because I'll tell you, I remember distinctly writing out a relapse prevention program. I, I got sober with the help of an outpatient program, you know, and they had you at the end of the program write out a very comprehensive, um, no, I'm saying it differently. I'm, I'm sharing a part of the story that isn't correct. They actually have you take a test. And I, you know, was uh, six weeks sober at this point, and I took this test, and then they give you like a personality test. They give you, um, you know, the results. And in the results, it was very clearly wrote, written that I was a very angry person. <laughs> and I'm laughing not because it's funny, but because I didn't see it. And I remember sharing it with a friend of mine, like this report is ridiculous. It says I'm an angry person. I'm not angry. And their mouth dropping to the floor. And I, I'll never forget the words that he said at that point. He's like, when you become angry, all of the oxygen come, you know, gets taken from the room and it feels like we're going to, you're going to implode with rage. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow. And so I'm glad that you brought that up because I do think that it's something that we don't want to think about or have, you know, part of our personality. Kathy, what do you think? Um, I've, I've been angry all my life um, and it is 
everything that's been said on here, I can't really add anything to it. it. It does suck the life out of everything around it when you have that flashpoint. It's like fire, like a backdraft. It's just the oxygen just disappears and there's nothing in the world but it. Um, and it, it and it can take over. Um, I'm a lot calmer in sobriety. If I get, I can't, in fact, I can't even remember the last time I was angry, but the, the, it's, it's something that doesn't, um, for me, it, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, anger, it, it, it does need another person uh, or situation, but it often turns into taking it out somewhere. And that is easiest done on a person. And I, I'm, I'm quite remorseful over some of the angry situations I've been in because I, I can be pretty, uh, pretty nasty verbally. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it just feeds on itself. It's, it's the most extraordinary emotion. Um, and then it disappears <laughs> very often for some people, but it leaves a, a, a terrible scar behind. Um, but yeah, that, um, that, that kind of ding dong of making so you're angry so you make someone else angry and and it just carries on oh that that's that's ringing some bells for me wow i you know what i so appreciate you being completely transparent because there's a couple of things that came out of me reading this chapter that kind of helped me understand um it, it is a wonderful catalyst there's a phrase in the book that that explains that anger is a wonderful catalyst, but a awful companion. And I thought, wow, that's a really beautiful way to say it. Um, she says it sucks the life out of you. And I think that's exactly what you just said. So why were, why are we talking about anger, right? It's not a fun topic. Nobody really wants to have it. Um, there are people who are chronically angry, but uh, what all of this research has shown is that, that, explaining um, that regulating and coping with anger rather than holding on to it and expressing chronic anger is crucial for our, the health of our brain. It reduces psychiatric problems and it's healthier for our organs. There is a biological component, which this is the first time I ever heard this. There, um, they, you know, there's generational anger and there are people who have a propensity for aggression and anger and it's partially hereditary. Um, they haven't found the specific gene location, but they can show that some of us are just wired for that. And that really surprised me, Deanna. Did you think that? Well, as somebody who comes from a family of angry people, <laughs> Um, it definitely, I feel that hereditary in my family, but I think that I personally recognized that very early on and I pushed away from that anger, which is why I think now I have such a hard time recognizing the anger inside myself because I've just denied it, denied it. I don't want to be the anger that I see in other people in my family, um, but I but like I said, this is, our anger looks different too. As I'm saying that, our anger comes out in different forms. And when Kathy was speaking, I was thinking that I don't think of Kathy as an angry person at all. And, but I have, I have heard her um, stand up for people. And I feel that that's when I get angry and I start to lose my coping mechanisms when I feel it. 
the topic of this chapter is places we go when we feel wronged. But I feel when I see someone else I love being wronged, the anger makes me a little bit crazy. So um, yeah, that's where I'm at with that. This is a good conversation. Ooh, yes, yes. And she really goes on to explain that, um, that actually feeling angry when somebody else is on, you know, has something that's done to them. It's an unjust situation. If there's no justice that actually anger in that area, um, Brene Brown calls it the most compassionate response. And I, I thought, wow, that's, I hadn't thought about it like that. So anger, according to Brene Brown, and this is part of what I think is really interesting because this is the way that I've understood it. Anger is a secondary indicator emotion that feels, emo that, um, kind of overruns, right, um, the emotions that are harder for us to feel and own. And that is exactly how I thought. But 91% of emotional experts say that is wrong. They say it's actually a primary emotion. And so I had always been told that it is, you know, that fear is behind anger. And so this, this, you know, this uh, text is making me really think about that. Um, and it's really interesting, um, I guess, to some degree, although she says it may be somatics. But I thought that's kind of a, an interesting question for me to ask myself. Um, is this my primary emotion? Because I've always been taught to look underneath. That's something that the 12 steps teach us is very clearly, although they use the word resentment. You know, um, they believe that fear is, is the main indicator that's behind anger. Chelsea. Ooh, oh my God. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I also have always been taught that it's like a secondary emotion. And like, I just went through an inventory process and it was like, fear is, I don't know. It's like egocentric and it goes back to your self-esteem and harm to your self-esteem. And that's what they say about anger. I don't know, because I had to do a fear inventory. And it was pointed out to me that fear, um, it's in the anger. Like if I'm angry about this or I'm angry about that, I'm afraid of something. And yeah, like I just, I had to pop up because I was going to mention all of that, but I like 1000%. I don't know, sometimes it's it's the first thing. Like it's the first response. Like, I don't know. Anywho, yes, <laughs> I disagree 1,000%. No, you're saying exactly what I was thinking, and I'd love for Deanna and Kathy to weigh in on this, um, because can anger be a primary emotion, uh, which is what most emotional researchers believe is? Can we just be angry about something, or you know, is it always a cover-up for other feelings? And I've kind of been thinking about, like, when when have I been angry in the past where I haven't been afraid? And I'd have to say there are times, you know, where I've heard of something else happening to someone else and I didn't have fear about it. it I didn't bring it all the way back to me. I actually was worried about them and angry, but I would love um, Deanna or Kathy or both for you to weigh in on the, the conversation about is anger, can anger just exist and it be the main, you know, the primary emotion, or does anger always show up for you with, um, you know, as a secondary emotion? Oh, go ahead, Deanna. 
I was just going to say that in my original notes after reading this chapter, I ended this by saying I personally don't think anger is a primary emotion, um, but that's for me personally, and that's the experiences that I've had that I can recollect right now. Uh, that's just what I think for myself. Yeah, I, from what's been read and what's been said, I'm I'm thinking is is anger a kind of refuge emotionally? It's it's like you don't know what to do. Your 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 blood is up, but whether that be from embarrassment from or a slight from other people or about the state of the world, is it a refuge emotion? You you get in there, you your body and your brain prepares yourself for for battle or whatever. Um, but it's a refuge as to what step you take next, maybe. Um, it's probably not the, with that much adrenaline, it's probably not the best place to refuge. But maybe it's a refuge that's on fire and uh, the easiest way to get out of it is to uh, is to burn the anger off. I, I don't know. But I think it might be, I think I, I need to maybe start thinking of it as a, as a waiting room. Um, that uh, something I'm engaged in or passionate about, but. Uh, it, it's for me it's a waiting room from now on and I think possibly incidentally and, and it unconsciously has been for for a few few months now oh I love that imagery truly Deanna, yeah, I love that too I just love that waiting room a refuge I that is a game changer for me that language to put with anger so thank you Kathy that I love that it's also short acting, which is another thing that that kind of the waiting room uh, image kind of helps me understand that. And I do know this. Uh, it is uh, like like you've shared. And so there's a lot of information that gets told to us. There's a lot of passive aggressive information that we told that it is not OK to be angry. It is not justified and it will cause it. And what I what I referenced when I first opened the room, I was talking about how anger, you know, was playing a role in my personality. I think that I drank over not wanting to feel it. Like I just had to numb out. And part of that was because I felt so much shame about being angry. And, um, and she brings up these really good passive aggressive things that we get told, or I should say that I got told um, when I did have something that I wanted to be angry about or I, I or it was the appropriate response and there are things like why are you so hostile don't get hysterical I'm I'm uh, I'm sensing so much anger don't take it so personally and I think that that there is a real idea um, and a real hidden message in those statements that say it's not okay for you to be angry and that's when I think it's very dangerous What do you ladies think? I think that that is, oh, go ahead, Kathy. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, the Hulk isn't green all the time, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, I don't know, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? I'm, I'm just thinking of the the immediateness of it and the, just, because it affects you, in, I mean, all emotions affect the body, but um, I can't think of one that kind of captures you quite so, um, almost paralytically as as anger can because your hands start your body actually starts moving you start shaking mm -hmm. or i i have done in the past um i'm just thinking on that at the moment so uh yeah i'm just sorry uh, no i think 
I think it's important to share it like that. That's one of the reasons, and maybe it seems like I'm belaboring the point, but that's because I've seen it be so, um, you know, unhealthy for people that don't want to share it. And I think that, you know, I love the idea of looking at it as a catalyst. And I think that's where she ends up landing because she still really brings in that. She thinks anger is like the indicator light on your engine, you know, in your car. It's telling us that there's something wrong. And so kind of making friends and not being afraid of it um, is, is a certain level of maturity and perspective that I want to reach for. And Deanna, you brought up an, a huge part of the reason why people find it so difficult is because if we're raised in homes, where we have a raging parent or an angry parent and there there is no room for us to be angry like there's none we start disassociating and it's not that we don't feel the feelings this is the thing or we don't have the feelings i should say um it's not that we aren't angry about things that happen but we start disassociating ourselves in order to survive it and so, you know, through my adult children of alcoholics work, I have learned that the trauma that I was creating for myself by holding on to it was much more harmful than just getting there. And it takes people a long time, you know, in my work with people, it takes people a long time to just get comfortable with it, which is one of the reasons why I think it's important to discuss it. Nobody, I don't think anybody really enjoys feeling angry. Even if it's somebody that I know who is somebody who's living with chronic anger, I don't really believe, I know most often I believe that they're, they're truly, truly afraid. And some of the work, um, like when we get to contempt, kind of backs that up. Um, and she says, you know, and I think this is true based on everything that uh, we've all shared that, you know, anger, getting angry or making a decision that I'm going to stay angry doesn't work. It doesn't stay. Um, it's that what's most important about anger is that it's an emotion we need to transfer into something that's life giving. And I thought that was a really great way to, to say, oh, here's the indicator light. Something's going off in me. And I need to go and research it and then figure out um, what, what has to actually be the change. It's that catalyst part, making friends with your anger. I have, I'm having a revelation at this moment. <laughs> so this room is amazing. Um, I realized that I was saying that I deny myself anger or I don't recognize it. But as we're talking, I do recognize that through what you said, Christina, that I did have a lot of anger as a child and I wasn't allowed to express it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the questions I had asked myself now was how do I regulate and cope with my anger now? And, or not even my anger, just anger in general. And I said, things I can do is I can breathe. I can take a walk. I can cry and let out some of that energy. Um, I can turn to gratitude and just find something I'm grateful for, which I realized I did all the time growing up. I just didn't recognize that I was doing that. Mm -hmm. And it really helped having another friend in my neighborhood. Um, I'll just say that we were escaping the same kinds of things in our home. And so we didn't want to bring anger to each other. We didn't, we weren't wise enough to know that, but we just 
came together and uh, I guess did what we need to to survive. And so the anger for me, actually, now I think about it, looks like me sitting on the stoop of my house or I actually used to hang out in like a sewer area. I know the, mm, the place I... we go to escape. <laughs> but so I recognize now that I did have a lot of anger, but I've been practicing for a long time how to manage that. So I feel kind of proud about that at this moment. So thank you. That's so good. I, I am a lover of writing uh, the FU letters. I'm, I really do find that to be very, very important because what I'm doing when I'm allowing those feelings to, you know, it's kind of like I, I put myself in a safe space. You know, I, I'm going to say waiting room now uh, that I've heard that because I think it's so important. And I'll, I will write out exactly with no editing, with no, you know, and just write it out and then rip it up. But the important part of me recognizing that I have it and listening to myself, it dissipates a lot faster. And, you know, she ends up at the end of this, which is one of the things that I really love about um, Dr. Brown, is that she doesn't pretend to have all the answers. She's bringing us research and she's bringing us, you know, the general population. And she said if you she didn't really think it mattered at one point, is it a primary uh emotion or is it a secondary one the the real point of it is actually recognizing that there it's acceptable you know that it that it's an indicator of something that needs to be changed and we don't get to avoid it um, even if you know for myself being you know okay i have to be small i have to be polite women don't get angry or we get called hysterical um, you know, and, and I, I say that just simply because that's the only perspective I have. I recognize that there are men who get labeled angry and, you know, they have to deal with their, you know, the flip coin of that uh, side, which is, you know, I'm sure just as harmful. But there's something about, you know, being called an angry woman and that is so demeaning and it's it's taking away our rights. And so. I, I, I know we, I realize we've spent 20 minutes talking about it, but I hope people will walk away and start looking at some of the things and use anger as, as a healthy reaction. It means you're alive and you're thinking, and it also is giving you an indication that something has to change, you know. Um, and we're going to go into contempt next because I, I thought this was really chilling information, and it gave me some ideas of some of the times that I've held that I've been contemptuous toward certain individuals, especially in my um, failed marriages. Uh, I recognize, wow, I, this is where I had gotten to. And I'm wondering if Tiana, if you wanna open up and share the, the quote that she starts at the top of contempt from Pamela Myers. Do you see that yeah. one? Yes, I do. I was deep in anger over here. In the <laughs> <laughs> okay, contempt. When someone is angry at you, you've still got traction with them. But when they display contempt, you've been dismissed. Pamela Meyer. It's very chilling when I think about it. And she goes into it. And it's funny because we talked about this on Wednesday with uh, the Gottman Institute. And for people who are not familiar with the Gottman Institute, their research um, has been primarily focused on marriage. 
but you can apply everything that they teach us um, to any relationship. But it says uh, that John Gottman, the, one of the founders, he and his wife, uh, as well as a research partner, run the Gottman Institute. Um, prolific researchers, great books. I highly encourage um, for anybody in the room to just Google Gottman and you will, I mean, they give away a lot of beautiful content and they give away a lot of information for language. And so we'll touch a little bit of it today, but he describes contentment as the most corrosive for a marriage. Uh, contemptuous communication is a huge, strong, like one of the number one indicators of a divorce. And the reason why he can say that with um, confidence is because they have predicted 90%, over 90%, they've been correct about which couples would stay together and which ones would divorce. And so they have this thing called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and it's contentment, criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And I love the way that they describe them. So I'm going to describe the four because it's important for us to, you know, I want to make sure that I bring in some solution here too. So criticism is where we verbally attack or blame our partner's character. And they use this example. She uses this example, you make us late. And the antidote to using that language is I feel frustrated when we are late. And then they go on to defensiveness. And it says, um, you know, that the phrase of the way that she describes what defensiveness looks like in a marriage is, come, you know, the person who has been the one making the couple late says, come on, you know, I have a hard time getting up. And uh, what they're saying is if you are have received a criticism, one of the things and one of the ways to diffuse it is to say, I'm sorry, I know, uh, I know that it must be hard for you that we're late, you know? And I thought, that's kind of hard to, that's a hard p pill to swallow when you're being criticized. But contempt, and this is why I'm making it very dangerous, is we attack our partner's sense of self. You know, we use and it's considered abusive and the way that they described what a contemptuous uh, criticism looks like versus just a regular criticism. Some your partner might say something, you know, I've I've known how to tell time since I was five years old and I can tell you complete honesty. I have had contemptuous language in several of my romantic relationships and realize, you know, that at that point when I got to feeling cont contempt for them, it was the relationship was dead at that point. You know, like there was no coming back from it. Um, and it, it's so important for us to have these rules of engagement where we do not attack somebody's personhood, even if we're angry. And of course, the fourth um, horseman is called stonewalling, which uh, we discussed I think just this past Wednesday, um, about how we get in an argument and our partner who's the, you know, this is their way of bringing in dysfunction. They absolutely walk away, you know, and they refuse to talk about it. They shut up and there's nothing. They avoid conflict by withdrawing. And what the antidote for that is to actually, uh, have a word or a phrase when you're in relationship with somebody that says, I'm getting flooded 
and I need to disengage right now. And I thought these are, so these are all things you can discuss with your partner or your friend or your parent or, you know, whatever, where uh, understanding that our nervous system has a limit. And if we are somebody who's used stonewalling as a way to protect ourselves, to have that phrase spoken about prior to so that your partner who's often the anxious attacher, you know, this is, I've been on the receiving end of stonewalling and I would continue to push for it um, long before I started understanding that when my husband Kelly says uh, that I need a break, that we really, you know, give each other a break and then we can come back and discuss something. So I, I want to stop there and see what anybody thinks about, um, you know what, right, let me read this real quick. It says, contempt, all right, somebody who has contemptuous uh, communication styles, uh, they can't separate contempt from criticism. It's, it, the difference is, is that when we are in contempt of somebody or being contemptuous toward them, it's an intention to insult and psychologically abuse our partners with words and body language. And we are literally lobbing insults over to that person that we want to hurt the very center of that person. You know, and we will think things like, you know, this person, my partner is stupid, or, you know, they're an incompetent fool. And we may roll our eyes. We do a lot of things. And um, I know I'm talking a lot about the relationship part of contempt, but contempt, forms of contempt are happening all around us. Um, and, you know, they brought up the political climate for this country, uh, that we're really in that place where we are condescending, we have hostile humor, name calling, uh, body mimicking. And I can think of, you know, certain political figures that use this on purpose. Contempt is poison to any relationship. And so I, I'm going to pause there and see from everybody who's up here. And if anybody wants to come up and share, please raise your hand. You know, I, I'm bringing the information, but I think that we heal. And um, when we are able to share about what's going on for us um, and we find out we're not alone. So I'm going to open it up and see what Deanna, if you want to share a little bit about this special little word contempt. Yeah, I do. Um, I spent a lot of time on this one and I'll bring it right into recovery and relationships. Um, I've, I never really thought about this until this chapter. And so I wrote out some very specific examples of myself that I feel could be contemptuous communication that I would like to stop at, at when I see it. Um, since I am sober and my husband is not, I need, I need to be sober. Um, what he does with his time is up to him and he's amazing and hard worker and blah, blah, blah. I could talk about how amazing he is forever, but you know, we have almost been married for 12 years and I have found that now that I am sober and I am constantly working on myself, at least I, I feel I am constantly working on myself. Um, I see a therapist, my husband does not. A lot of things we do very differently. And so sometimes our arguments can, I can 
hear myself saying that um, I I'm working on myself and you're not. So I'm I'm pulling my weight. I'm putting in the real effort in this relationship. I wouldn't say those words, but they do come out in some form. And uh, then we do we address it. We this book has been he's not reading it but i do read some things from the book to him because i'm like hey i do this or i've noticed we do this um like something he would contemptuous language he would use towards me and i'm just paraphrasing these things but you can't handle stressful situations like i can that's why you have to see a therapist and i don't and i feel that as this person in recovery i feel that from other people quite a bit that's probably my own personal issue i'm having um, but just talking about this contempt and using examples for myself that i can recognize oh i don't want to do that um is is help it's definitely helpful and then i can change the language learning some the other language we have to use instead of being a contemptuous meanie face so I would love to hear from other people. It's my default setting. Um, I've been accused of being contemptuous many times and I can't disagree with any of the instances particularly. Um, I have a, I don't use the B word very often, but I have a, a classic resting bitch face. Um, my emotions are inter intertwined with my facial expression um so uh, so quickly it, it's it's yeah it's all my face almost shows an expression before my emotions have processed it um and it's it's a even though some this is going to sound horrible now and like i haven't developed at all but bear with some people are beneath contempt they some people i i do treat con with contempt because they have um broken societal rules or um i'm thinking of like politics i'm thinking of extremes you know i'm not thinking of like people you see on the bus or something like that but um and i can and i it's i think you know contempt sometimes is a is a is a cultural thing it's a societal thing um there are some things that we don't tolerate in in other people and our natural reaction is contempt um, I realize I might be in a minority saying that because um, it's all about self-improvement, but um, I, I, yeah, I've, I've been told um, I, uh, I act it and I express it and I look it um, on more than one occasion. Uh, so I'm just going <laughs> to leave that there before I dig myself any deeper. Oh, thank you, Kathy. You brought up so many good points um, and, and you're, I'm so glad you brought up society too, because I think that it's important for us to realize that that we have a culture, and I'm sure that you have something similar over there. That you know, contempt, that feeling contempt towards certain people, feels really justified. And she, you know, in this chapter, she shares about uh, she shares this wonderful article about our culture of contempt. And it says politi political scientists have found that our nation is more polarized, and we're talking about the United States, than it has ever been since before the Civil War. Americans have stopped talking to a family member or close friend because of the 2016 election. So 
almost every person has stopped doing this. Millions of people organize their social lives around news exposure that goes along with their ideal, ideal, idealized lives and their belief systems. And that she explains that there's this thing called motive attribution asymmetry. And what it is, is that, um, you know, one political group will believe that their ideology is based, is benevolent, it comes from God. And they'll believe that the opposing person is actually evil. And uh, they, she wanted to share that the studies that have shown since, you know, this country has gone through the big 2016 election that there's, that it's on par with the, um, with the war from between Israel and Palestine. I mean, I was like, wow. And it happened so quickly, I guess, in some cases. And so I love that you brought that up because I'm, I'm really want to make sure I put that in the in the information out there for anybody who's trying to uh, trying to figure out how contempt works for them, um, I'd love to hear from from Chelsea or Carrie. What are your feelings on this word? Um, this is Carrie. I, hi, everybody. It's nice to hear your voices. Um, I really related to this. I'm kind of like Kathy where contempt is kind of my fallback. And I, if you don't, if I didn't tell you, you can sure read it on my face, <laughs> the feeling that I'm expressing or feeling at the moment, not necessarily expressing. I really, this made me think a lot about a conversation that I had with my mom just recently and how I've been fighting since I had children to change that cycle. And she had said that my son reached out to her and she didn't know how to deal with that because the last time she told him something, I flipped out on her. And I was like, well, you can't talk to people like that. And she said, um, well, when your sister's kids get lippy with her, I tell them, don't talk to my daughter like that. And I said, you can't. You, you don't have that right. You can't just talk to people any way you want. I said, if you're being kind in, in, in what you're saying and how your grandchildren are reaching out to you, then there's not a problem. You don't have to worry about it. But if you're going to be loaded and say, well, I think you're a little fucking asshole, excuse my language, you, it's not okay. Words hurt. So you have to, you and that's how my family is major majorly communicates with one another it's like well why didn't you do this or oh that's that's not the right thing to do or you know and you just you have to break that cycle and you can't just say what you want to say whenever you want to say it and um I, and the, also the point like deanna said where i'm working on myself and trying to be a cycle breaker and a better person and you're not so we're not seeing eye to eye and we're not um meshing and you are coming at me a lot of times with it, unintentional contempt because i do believe it is a learned behavior and anger is a mainstay in the way that we communicate with our family um but that that it, it being Ill, being strong enough to say enough is enough it really um works to that contempt word works a lot towards my um my recovery my codependency 
my work with ACA, all of those things, and just really being a cycle breaker. Because again, I say all the time in our society, we've forgotten to be nice when people bump into you or something like that. And they're like, oh my God, oh my God, excuse me. I'm like, it's okay. We can share. Like we can both look at the same item. It's all right. So that's how I've seen us kind of shift towards that. And I do have to make an effort to not do that, um, to not be contemptuous because again, it's what was taught. It was what was lived and it's what's accepted as a norm sometimes in our society. Um, this is Carrie. I'm finished. Well, thank you. And thanks for bringing it home to, um, both you and Kathy brought it up because I think that uh, for me, I don't want to look at myself as being contemptuous, but I feel very justified when it comes to people I don't know. And it, and just looking at that behavior, the the whole you know political environment that came up, uh, you know, in the last six years, I, I was shocked. But I also realized that I was complicit. That there were definitely feelings like I really felt the way that you know my politics are based in kindness and love and friendship, and yours are based in greed. Without ever truly looking at it and they talk about how contempt is causes really deep harm and i think that's you know the important part of why we're talking about it says you know the person who wrote that article and several psychologists said this which i think is is kind of the way we can close out contempt and move to disgust another favorite but the two go hand in hand is we do not need to disagree less we need to learn how to disagree better and, uh, and I can look in my own world, in my own behavior, in my own thoughts, and say, I need to do more work in this area. It's funny, I just had a little antidote or antidote to show that my, my um, mother-in-law and mother-in-law and I have a little bit of a tumultuous relationship at times. And I said to her, we're going to have to agree to disagree. And you would have thought that I ran over her dog six times and punched her in the face. And it was like, I insulted her more by saying, can we agree to disagree rather than arguing my point or her a stance. So I, I'm glad you brought that up because agreeing to disagree is something I really push with my children. And it's about respecting other people's um, I, ideals, values, their situation. And agreeing to disagree is an adult response and it's a healthy response. Carrie, I'm so glad you said that. My sister has exactly the same reaction to that phrase. She thinks it's backing down or you don't want to engage. It's like, no, it's making space. Mm-hmm. But I loved your description. Thank you. That made me laugh. Christina, if you're talking, you're mic'd. Thank you so much, because I was seeing some brilliant things. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, You know, I know we only have, you know, seven minutes, but I think that this would be a great time to bring up the word discuss, because I did not know this. Um, and, and I want to summarize it, uh, and maybe, do you see the questions, Deanna, that she asked right in the beginning? Yes, I do. I think that they really help bring home this feeling disgust. Um, and, and I did not know that this is a physical feeling. Like it's a, it's, it's a word and emotion that is supposed to stay in your physical 
sphere versus having it for another human. And so I would wonder if you would ask those questions because I'd love I'd love to finish the room with this so that we can discuss some of the other words for our part two of this chapter. Yeah, let me just make sure that I'm reading the ones you're requesting. Uh, the first one, because they're not all questions, but it says, uh, discussed. I might be willing to yeah. try eating monkey. Okay, <laughs> this is an interesting one. Hold, hold, hold on, hold on to your seats, people, and think of the word discussed. <clears throat> I might be willing to try eating monkey meat under some circumstances. Ugh. It bothers me to hear someone clear their throat full of mucus. I won't do that for you. If I see someone vomit, it makes me sick to my stomach. It would not upset me at all to watch a person with a glass eye take the eye out of the socket. Even if I was hungry, I would not drink a bowl of my favorite soup if it had been stirred by a used but thoroughly washed fly swatter. Ew, gross. So, yeah, you might go, why the heck did you have her read those? Because I think that when we have that imagery, we can feel disgust. Like that's a generalized universal response to those instances. So with contempt, we look down on others. Um, it's used so that we can exclude or ignore them. But with disgust, inferiority is not the issue. The feeling is more physical. We want to avoid being poisoned literally or figuratively. And it sounds weird, but it's real. Researchers state that the experience of disgust encourages individuals to distance themselves from the emotional, emotion-producing source, thereby limiting contact and exposure to a potentially infectious or toxic target. It is actually intuitive when we feel the emotion disgust is intuitive microbiology. And it makes us avoid something um, completely. And of course, um, it comes with physical senses, your sight, your smell, your touch, your sound, and you, things you hear and things that you taste. But when we mean somebody, another human disgust, there's a bunch of, of stages, of course. You know, there's mild uh, kind of avoidance all the way to repugnance, revulsion, you know, intense uh, avoiding, intense loathing. And so I love, I mean, our facial expressions, which has been already shared here, give us clues. And it's very, very uh, dangerous because disgust is the gateway to dehumanization. And so I really wanted to leave with that kind of information um, so that as you're thinking about maybe groups of people or you know the turmoil that's in your life, when do you feel disgust about somebody and, and how is it opening the gate to us dehumanizing others? Deanna, what did you think when you read this part? Well, the disgust conversation put me back into talk, feeling um, anger or thinking of anger. And the things that I find disgusting are uh, sexual assault, crimes against children, very serious things I find absolutely repulsive. And that, then that makes me angry. Um, and what, what, I, what I liked in this chapter, something I really took away from it, was that disgust 
and pardon me if I'm stepping on your toes to saying this because I just think it's awesome. Disgust protects us from unseemly behavior or contamination of the soul. And so I think it um, it makes me, if I feel disgust, I should get curious or I want to be curious about why I feel the disgust. And for me personally, I take I take massive action when I feel this um, this feeling, which is one of the reasons I volunteer at the juvenile detention center. And I don't mention this very often, but I actually work with um, a lot of teenagers that have committed sexual crimes. So I am changing my feelings of disgust so that it doesn't lead to dehumanization. That was heavy and a lot to drop at the end of a room. Right, right. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's okay. I think it's really, really important to share. These aren't topics, you know, this isn't common conversation, but it's one of my favorite parts of this room and the people who come up is that we're willing to look at it so that we can be completely free and real and be seen um, recovery works because we're willing to get honest and um, i'd love to kind of i mean i know it's right at the hour but i'm willing to spend another five minutes i'd love to see if kathy or carrie have a response or both about the emotion discussed it's um in some ways, it uh, like Deanna uh, touched upon. Some in some ways, it's a necessary thing discussed. I mean, we we can have a visceral response to certain things, and it's a, a protection measure. Um, if certain smells tell us not to eat things, certain um, certain acts, um, bullying, um, hitting children, um, being cruel to animals, they fill you know they're very visceral. They they make they fill you with that, and um so some of it's for protection some of it is societal some of it is learned um i think um disgust can be can be kind of brainwashed into you for 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 some things and for some people um but it's it's a necessary part of our makeup um and it's what it's what we do next it's what we do next um it's a it's a kind of you know hot uh hot ring on the um, oven top um, reaction, you know, that uh, 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 I'm going to retreat and um, what do I do next? That, that's what it is for me. Um, I think uh, morally, it's morally is where it can be learnt and unlearnt. Um, but I think our natural response of, of uh, visceral stuff is uh, some of it is things that we will all find disgusting. And that's where the societal and cultural thing comes in um and some of them are pure evolutionary i think um that's not very enlightening i'm afraid no it is i'd love that you brought that up because i think that's exactly how we should land on it um not to deny it but to actually question it and figure it out and i'll tell you um one of the the biggest harms that i did for myself was to not listen to it in some cases not really give it you know, an opportunity to explore why am I feeling this way? And the the way that you broke it down, and that's why I think it's so interesting, is to realize that physical response to that emotion, that visceral response, reaction, is to be paid attention. And you're right, what we do with it next is important. Carrie, did you want to finish us up? 
I will. Um, it's kind of, I'm really, that's why I love this group. We all have a different interpretation and can find insight and share it with others. Because when I thought of the dis disgust, I was still thinking along the lines of behavior and my codependency and things like that. And then Deanna brings to the forefront and Kathy, these issues that are innately just visceral responses that we as a society or as ourselves find disgusting. And what came to my mind was um, behave, behavior that I, so um, people who are, um, I have, I'll just say for, I have to give you an example. I, one of the things that immediately came to my mind was an aunt that I have who has probably what, 50 years nearly, 40 years at least of um, abuse, of, of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, things like that. She's an addict. And the inability to, for her to get better or want to get better and the things that she's willing to expose, not only me as a kid, but my own children and how I love her. I love her. I love her. I don't want anything to happen to her, but I really don't like her. And I can't have day-to-day um, -day contact with her yet. A couple of weeks ago, we were in a conversation and somebody said something and I, they, I, I became the morality police and I had to apologize to that person because I was like, I had no right to pass judgment on you for judging her because I'm not the morality police. What I, but I still found myself protecting her because they went after her for bad behavior that everybody around them was doing. And that's kind of a roundabout way, but that's, to me, it was what, I, you know, like I said, my codependency, my addiction, all, I was thinking about that and how that was affecting rather than the simple fact that there's that child who's being harmed. And it makes me think of the John Quinones uh, show where it's like, what would you do? Um, and I think sometimes disgust can be a protective measure like anger. And we have to look at the true reason of why we feel that. And in my family relationships, it's because I'm sad that they don't want to get better. And because they're making the choices that they are, I can't be around them because it's not healthy for me. So that's why I feel that disgust, I think. I don't know. It's just kind of interesting. I'm really glad that um, to hear another point of view of it. Yeah, and I, uh, I want to just um, say I'm going to explore this further for myself. And, I'm, and I want to actually look at it from a lens of when have I felt that I, I was disgusting. You know, just to kind of ex examine it. And so I, I just thank everybody who came in here. Uh, we will return the usual day. I know Deanna can't come, so maybe Kathy or Carrie or somebody who's available can come up and help Maud on that day. It's, you know, completely up to you. But we will finish the chapter because there are some really amazing um, conversations about that word hate and hatred that I think is important. I think all of you, these aren't light conversations and I understand that, but I do believe they're important and uh, it's just been very, very informative to me. Thank you. And Deanna, do you have anything to say as we shut down? I just wanna say thank you everyone that has joined the room to listen and to converse. I find, I find this just, I'm, gl I'm glad we got to do it on a Friday because just I like to shake things up. I like contrast. And this has been a pleasant addition to my Friday morning and this great conversation. So I just appreciate all of you guys. Thank you so much.
And I would okay. like to say thank you for providing me clarification what a makeup session is. <laughs> Yo, God, you're right. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody. Have a beautiful weekend. I will return on Monday for uh, Recovered Life uh, Intentions. And uh, as always, um, protect your recovery. Reach out. Uh, we are more alike than, than we are different. And I just, um, I thank you all. Uh, time is important and special. So have a beautiful day. Bye. Keep the conversation going. Join Recovered Life, a community of like-minded people who are looking to live their best recovered lives. Membership is free, and you can apply at recoveredlife.us.